Mishkat first. Okay. Um, so, there were two hadith that I looked at, because last week we were talking about hadith Jibreel and what it, um, its commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, in Mishkat, uh, the next hadith that is mentioned is also the third hadith in, um, in the Arba'in and Nawi collection. So it goes, وَعَنِ بْنَ عُمْرَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمَا قَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ بُنِيَ الْإِسْلَامَ عَلَى خَمْسِ شَهَادَةِ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَأَنَّ مُحَمَّدَ الرَّسُولُ اللَّهُ وَإِقَامِ الصَّلَاةِ وَإِيْتَاءِ الزَّكَاةِ وَحَجِّ الْبَيْتِ وَصَامِ رَمَضَانِ مُتَفِقْ عَلَيْهِ So the commentary by um, in, in Mishkat at least is not very vast. Um, so what I did, uh, I had some old commentary from when I was studying um, Al-Arba'in, so I went back to that and sort of looked at the commentary for that um, with, with this hadith. But first, I'll talk about the, the commentary in Mishkat. So, first, the translation of this hadith is that Sayyidina Abdullah bin Umar, the son of Umar ibn al-Khattab, uh, narrated that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Islam is built on five things. The testimony that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is his slave and his messenger. Then number two, establishing the salah. Number three, payment of the zakah. Number four, performing the hajj. And number five, fasting in the month of Ramadan. Now, um, the commentary in Mishkat is that Islam is compared with like a building. And the building needs to have strong foundations in order to, to be standing. Thus, Islam has five things <coughs> without which no one can sustain his Islam. Their beliefs in monotheism, messengers, uh, messengership, observing salah, um, which is prayer, zakah, which is charity, hajj, which is the pilgrimage, and fasting, which is salm. Um, after that, after these foundational elements are met, then the building can be decorated, can be beautified. And likewise, a person's Islam can be beautified and bettered uh, or perfected um, with the wajib and the mustahab, the recommended deeds, but they aren't mentioned in this hadith because this, this hadith focuses on um, the um, the foundations. So then the the commentary from Arba'in that I found very interesting was that first the the scholar here, uh, Sheikh Jamal Al Badi um, of the University of Malaysia, the Islamic University of Malaysia, he writes this commentary and he says first that. The hadith, first of all, uses a metaphor um, to, to describe the, uh, the state of a person's iman or how their iman should be um, with like a building. And he gives different examples of this in the Qur'an. So he talks about Surah Tawbah, Ayah 109, The translation is um, that... Uh, actually, I'll find the exact translation. It's that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, um, one second. <clears throat> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, which one is better? The one who has founded his building on fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and on search of his pleasure, or the one who has built his building on the edge of an abyss that is about to collapse? then it does collapse with him into the fire of Jahannam. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not give guidance to the unjust people. So it's a, it's a metaphor between the structure of a Muslim person's deen, which is based on a solid foundation, and a hypocrite, 
um, which is based on a crumbling building. Then Surah Nur, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the metaphor of light um, as guidance of the heart of a mu'min. And then one that we actually talked about, which is in Surah Jum'ah. Uh, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala compares um, the Jews who received the Torah to, uh, to the donkeys who are unable to carry its weight. Um, a donkey with, with heavy books that can't carry its weight. So basically, uh, the, the scholar, he mentions that metaphors are a way to convey the, the message um, and that it's one of the ways that the Prophet sallam, gave da'wah and gave knowledge towards, the, uh, towards his companions. And he discusses that it's important to realize the different ways that the Prophet ﷺ communicated his message or the messages that are communicated in the Qur'an. Like for example, he, he mentions that when it came to dealing with the misconceptions and the false assumptions of the disbelievers, the Qur'an and Hadith use rational thinking. But when it comes to like describing Jannah and Hellfire, then the style used by the Qur'an is more full of imagery and like visual uh, aspects. Um, such that they're described in such detail that it's like we can actually visualize Jannah and Jahannam for ourselves. Um, and then the scholar starts talking about the importance of each of the, uh, of each of the five pillars. So he mentions the first pillar, that saying Shahada isn't just saying like La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah by tongue, but rather he, he breaks it into seven conditions. The first is knowledge, which is to have understanding of what it means. The second is certainty, to have no doubt about the Shahada. The third is acceptance, which is by the tongue and by heart to accept whatever the shahada implies. And the fourth is submission, which is the actual physical enactment of the shahada, which is by your deeds. Truthfulness, which is to say the shahada sincerely and to like really mean it. Sincerity to do it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And love, to love the shahada and to love its implications. Then in addition to that, the second part of the shahada is the importance of um, believing in the Prophet and in whatever he told us and conveyed to us um, and that's following his hadith following his sunnah um, and believing in them um, and he mentions that the people who do not believe in the Prophet hadith they believe that like you know for, for example there are some that they, they call themselves like the Qur'ani people that they don't believe in the, in the hadith at all then he says these people have rejected the shahada because they reject the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And then in addition, it's to obey him in whatever he commanded us to do, to follow him and emulate him in your ibadah, akhlaq, in your way of life, um, and to understand, practice, and promote his sunnah, as I said. So that's the first pillar of shahada. Then the second pillar, which is salah, it's not just performing the prayers, but rather, like for example, to do the wudu in the proper way, to do the salah, honest time, uh, in jama'ah if possible, um, with khushur. Um And like the Prophet ﷺ, he said in a hadith that the reward for jama'ah, salah, like praying salah in congregation, is 27 times better than praying alone. Um, and then to fulfill the, the fara'id of salah uh, and to follow the sunan of salah. Then, um, he, then the scholar starts talking about zakah, which he mentions, you know, uh, the specific rules of zakah. He says that the giving of zakah has been pointed out by the Prophet ﷺ for certain things and in certain ways or percentages under certain conditions. So you have to realize like what conditions you fall upon and then how you have to pay your zakah appropriately. Uh, and then the fourth pillar, Hajj, which is a pilgrimage to uh, Mecca or Medina. Uh, sorry, to, to, to Mecca. Um, 
and to do the, the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us to do in Hajj. Um, and the scholars say that um, even if you have the ability to do it, the ability and the finances rather, to do it more than once, that you should give it to someone who lacks those resources so that you get the reward for it and they get the reward for that Hajj instead of doing Hajj over and over and over again. Um, then, once again, uh, with Hajj too, you have to have um, the correct amount of ibadah. You can't just go to Hajj and not, uh, not have the respectable akhlaq or the respectable adab of Hajj. Like for example, um, the, the scholar, the commenter here, he mentions the throwing of stones at um, the Jamarat. And he mentions that even though we're supposed to use small stones, people tend to use big ones and throw recklessly from a far distance, causing injury to others. People don't follow the specific directions where they need to move, which causes many people to get trampled or to get, um, to get hurt in that aspect. And many people insist on going on peak times, even though sometimes it's better to just go uh, when it's less crowded. So these type of things are, are part of the adab of, of actually going to Hajj, that you have to look out for each other and that through your ibadah you're not causing someone else's harm. Uh, and then lastly, he talks about fasting, uh, where he says Ramadan is a program for all Muslims to go through performing good deeds to become better Muslims. Um, but it's not just to do those good deeds in Ramadan and then call it quits and not Im implement that. Ramadan should be a time for you to get better and for you to allow yourself to continue to get better throughout the year. Um, and the Prophet ﷺ, when asked what the best way is to finish reading the whole Quran, he said to do it in one month, one juz per day. Um, and this is something that many people do in Ramadan, um, but the scholar here says that you shouldn't have to do it just in Ramadan. You should be reading the Quran as much as you can every day. Don't reserve it just for Ramadan. Don't reserve your actions just for Ramadan, even though that Ramadan gives you a lot of barakah. You don't want to reserve things just for Ramadan and then forget about them after Ramadan has passed. Um, and then the scholar concludes basically with a summary, basically saying that all the pillars of Islam have rulings, conditions, and mannerisms applied to each of them. It's important that you know the uh, the mannerisms and the conditions as well as the actual pillars themselves and their rulings um, and to practice them based on the conditions and, and, uh, and mannerisms that they were prescribed. Okay, okay, very good. So, alhamdulillah. So now, uh, looking at each of these pillars, uh, if you were to remove any of them and it would make the rest fall apart, which would it be? Shada. Shahada, definitely, right? Yeah. So think of the Shahada as sort of the, the the foundation in the ground. Yes. And then the other four would be, uh, so to speak, the pillars built upon uh, a foundation. If you were to put one on top, which would that be? That's a tough Hajj, one. Probably. So probably Hajj. Or Hajj is a guy, I think. So, so the point being that uh, it's as though the the foundation of the building is is shahada and it's almost as though all the pillars are actually salah yeah and then uh you can add siyam as additional pillars and then and then zakat would also perhaps be an additional pillar and then hajj would perhaps be on top but the key point i'm emphasizing is that if it's possible to have a second most important one it would probably be Salah. Yes. Right. And you see this especially in the various order given of the five pillars. So when you were looking, when you were uh, going through the Hadith of Jibreel, the order of the five pillars was different, right? Yeah. And here the order is different, yet Shahada and Salah are still always the first two. Good. 
Now let's think about this another way. Shahada, how do you do the shahada? By believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So That's what it means, but yeah. what do you do? You implement it by following Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Make technology. it simpler, what do you do? Implement. You, you believe. say it. Believe. You yeah. say it. That's Okay, so it is worship with the tongue. Okay. So now try to think of all the parts of salah. There's the things you say. What else are parts of salah? Um, the things you say. Um, the things that like you do. Like? Like rukur, sujood. Okay, so it is worship with the tongue. It is also worship with the body. Okay, now here's the point that a lot of people in our community don't understand. Uh, that yoga in Hindu tradition has been totally corrupted in our society by becoming a type of stretching exercises. And maybe people throw in some candles and some, some music and then they'll feel like it's really spiritual. Yoga in Hindu tradition is an act of worship. And if you look at Salah uh, as a parallel to yoga, or it's often easier to do it the other way around, look at yoga as a parallel to Salah, you'll find a lot of parallels, right? That the word we use in yoga is postures, and so think of, of, the, of, of the different parts of Salah, the different positions as postures. It's actually, it's, for many people who are not familiar with the idea, it actually sounds blasphemous to say it, but they're actually very, very similar. Obviously, worship for us is, is to Allah Ta'ala in the form uh, given by the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay, so it's worship in the form of the, with the tongue. It's worship with the body. What else? What else are the parts of Salah? Think of anything and everything that's part of Salah. Intention. Okay, so intention will be for, for all of them. And there, there's a difference of opinion whether it should be articulated out loud or not. But what else? So intention, face in the Qibla. Okay, so worship in the form of your orientation. Which way are you facing? You know, many times in the Quran, it speaks about the face. You know, wherever you turn, there's the face of Allah, right? So it's also worship in the form of orientation. What else? Worship by the heart. Okay, uh, how? Um, by... What is your heart doing? Submitting to Allah. Well, yeah, not really, but okay. You're going to think of just from a fiqh perspective. What else? Um, so, you start with the takbirat. Um, okay, so that's recitation and, and body. What else? Yes. Um, okay, you're missing... It's, the question is, is is deceptively simple, and this is part of the point. Is, Masha, you're doing a good job of doing all the advanced things, and so now we're going to root like the basic points. What else? Um, the... Like, if you were going to teach someone who doesn't know anything about Salah, so you've talked about okay, you're facing the Qibla, you're uh, you're going through these positions, you're reciting such and such things. Well, you've made it? you've made certain things haram that um, like you you've dedicated yourself solely to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala in that period of time. Uh, so it's also worship in terms of the time that has been given you, yeah. um, starting with the takbir tahrima, right? But also when you're making your prayers. What else? Um, so we said time. Um, Worship in congregation too. So, so that would also work. That the prescribed or the preferred, especially for men, is done in congregation. Yeah. Um, what about prerequisites? Having wudu. Okay. So, what is wudu? Um, ablution, like cleaning yourself before salah. So, that so yeah, but it's not cleaning yourself. It is worship in the form of cleaning. Yeah. Right. So, so for example, uh, if I take a shower, uh, does that count as my wudu? No. Depends on who you ask, yeah. but overall. Um, if you do the steps of wudu in your shower, then now you've actually gone through the actual process. 
Like to, to really make sense of this, uh, if I did all the steps of Salah in reverse order, does that count as Salah? No. No, obviously not, right? Even though I have all the steps. And so there is the prescribed order. And so with Wudu, think of Wudu not as cleaning, but it's worship in the form of cleaning. Just like Zakah is not charity. It's worship in the form of charity. What's the word we use for charity? Um, sadaqah. Sadaqah, right? That's more straight up charity. Zakah is worship in the form of charity. Okay, very good. And so, so when we get into the word uh, uh, salah, what does that mean? Um, so technically it means prayer, but it means more than... So that's in terms of its operational definition and the literal definition. So like operational definition, think of, for example, anti-Semitism. Operational definition means what? It's something, uh, you're uh, hostile to Jews. The literal definition is anything against Semites would include Arabs, right? But the operational definition focuses on Jews. So the operational uh, word Salah is referring to our daily prayers. The word itself literally means connection. And so to whom or what are you seeking connection with Salah? List it out. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So definitely Allah ta'ala. What else? Prophet So the Prophet, especially how we are learning our prayer through him. Okay. Where did he learn from? Uh, Jibreel. Jibreel And so even the sunnah is coming from Allah Ta'ala. Uh, 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 to whom else or what else are we also seeking connection? We're seeing connection to ourselves as well. Yeah. So that'd be, so number one would be Allah. Uh, number two would be the Prophet. So maybe number five would be ourselves. The other two are a little bit harder. What would they be? Um, you've, already, you've actually mentioned one of them already. Seeing connection um, to, well, Depends on if Jubilee counts, but um, seeing a connection to technically others in a way. So the ideal prayer being in community, yeah. in congregation, so you're seeking connection to the community. And the other one is connection to nature. Because the prayer time is according to what? It's according to where the sun is in the sky right. and or how long your shadow is. Right? And so, so that is, uh, these are the different parts of connection that you're seeking with Salah. Okay, uh, let's look at uh, Siam. What are the parts of Siam? Um, so, parts of Siam are to fast in the prescribed like time frame. So this is worship in the of, of the diet, right? So we're even making diet an act of worship. What are other ways for diet to be an act of worship? What are other ways? Yeah, so outside of Siam. Um, like, for example, not... Um, like ad adhering to the to the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad in the sense that like he never ate till he was like very full, mm -hmm. um, uh, and and following the uh, his sunnah through that way. So even before getting to the sunnah, the farther than haram matters, right? Yeah. I mean, farther is the fact that you are eating, but the haram is that you are staying away from things that are are, are haram. And then okay, so what else is part of siyam? Uh, so like I said, to do it. Um, to do it correctly, to do it when it's um, like when it's mandatory or when it's sunnah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, like for example, Mondays and Thursdays it's sunnah. Let's talk about Ramadan. Okay, let's talk about Ramadan. Yeah. Uh, so Ramadan is fard, so we know uh, it's fard, and then we know that it's fard from um, from uh, from Fajr to Maghrib. Yeah. So this is also again worship in the form of time, right? Just like with Salah, it's worship in the form of time. So think of time being a currency you've been given. 
and and that has you know these markers and so it's worshipped that way okay uh, and then we also have tarawi which includes all the aspects of 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 salah there um i think those are the main ones uh for for siam okay what about um zakah worship in the form of money so worship in the form of charity yeah in which is your mal which in our economy is primarily money in the uh in the time of the prophet peace be upon him it was a barter economy so it could be grain and such and such um what else what else is a worship in the form of uh so in the form of charity um think about when do you do zakah uh every year um, yeah so i mean in the community it's the practice to do it ramadan so everybody can cash in all the multiple levels of reward but you know in theory one is it it's either from the moment you become what we call baligh, which is responsible, and then you become, uh, uh, or not, baligh is essentially like mature-ish, um, and then you become mukallaf, you have taklif on your responsibility. And so, just like with um, prayer, you, you have to start praying at a certain uh, age, fasting, you start to fast, and then zakah. Essentially, you can either apply it for when you become of age, and for most of those years, you'll probably be uh, not you'll be excused from, from paying zakah. Um, or you can do it from the moment you're first um, eligible to, to pay zakah. But in any case, the point being that it is worship in the form of, of charity. It is worship in the form of time, more on the calendar level than in the daily level. Um, those are the main ones there. What about hajj? Hajj is also based on time because you do it once, uh, yes. once every like once in your entire life. Yeah, but on a particular day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then it's it's worship in, in the form of a, a specific place because yeah, you so give, this is worship in the form of location. Yeah. Yes. Um, because you know you're going to to Mecca uh, and mm -hmm. and Medina, then it's worship in the form of the specific steps prescribed by the Quran and by the Sunnah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then it's also worship in the form of community. Uh -huh. It's a worship in the form of community. It is also worship in the form of clothing as yeah. well. Yeah. And then it includes in different ways almost everything that the others have as well. Yeah. Because for, like in zakah, you are paying for hajj. You know, you are, someone can pay for you. But it's the question of do you have the, afford uh, the capability to afford it? And uh, I think those are all the, the main ones there. So, so the point to think about is that what we are also given are different types of worship with each of these things. The most basic one is worship with the tongue. And this, as we'll see over the course of our discussions, is often what can make or break you, what you do with your tongue. Yeah. In addition, the, uh, the, each one represents a different unit of time. So how long does it take to say the Shahada? A moment. And then you have the daily prayers, a moment a day, and then taking it out of order from here. But um, then you have fasting in the month of Ramadan, a moment a day, a month, annual zakah, and then pilgrimage in a lifetime. So a moment a day, a month, a year, a lifetime. So each of the acts of worship also represents a different unit of time as well, inshallah. And so those are, those are all like foundational things that I want to add to, to the other mashallah stuff that, that you shared. Um, I'm thinking, let's stop with this one. You already prepared for the next one, but maybe we'll save that for, yeah. for next time. And then we'll get into the... I actually yeah. don't have the copy of Melo book. I did the reading, but I 
have it on in my dorm. I forgot to bring it. Um, okay, so we have two options. Either we, we just continue with this. Yeah, I think okay, we should just continue. Okay. So let's uh, go on to the branches of faith, inshallah. Okay. So I'll just start with the Arabic. وعن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم الإيمان بضع وسبعون شعبة وسبعون شعبة فأفضلها قول لا إله إلا الله وأذناها إمادة الأذى عن الطريق والحياة وشعبة من الإيمان متفق عليه. And remind me what does متفق عليه mean? It means رواه البخاري ومسلم. Yeah, that we find it both in Bukhari and Muslim. Um, uh, essentially. Uh, at the very minimum with the same matan, the same text, but ideally that at least would chain with the same narration. Yeah. So so the Nawawi collections, whether we're talking about the 40 hadith or the Riyadh al-Salihin, of this collection is not going to be including the chain, uh, which means that they're probably focusing just on the text. But, yeah. Okay. Um, actually, what's interesting with that is that the second footnote here mentions that um, in Muslims' narration, um, yeah. uh, it's mentioned that it's 60 like uh, instead of وَسَبَعُونَ شَعْبَةً mm-hmm. 70 uh, branches, it's 60 branches uh, and in Bukhari uh, it uh, it's without um, the part of, of the most excellent path yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'll just say the translation Sayyiduna Abu Hurairah narrated that the Prophet said Faith has some more than 70 branches. The most excellent of them is the confirmation that there is no God but Allah. And the humblest of them is to remove a hurdle from the path. And haya, which is modesty, is a branch of faith. Okay. okay. Um, and then the commentary that um, the that is given here is that the hadith first of all mentions the number of branches um, of Islam. And some hadith described in detail. So this commentary talks a lot about uh, some of the examples of the branches of Iman. So it starts out with, um, first of all, the to understand that there is no one worthy of worship by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, and that everything is His creation. Everything He controls, um, and so everything in the universe will perish. Uh, and in the same way, a correct belief is essential about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's messengers, books, and angels. It goes back to... Um, Hadith Jibreel, Al-Iman wa tu'mina billahi wa malaikatihi wa kutubihi wa rasulihi wa liyawmi al-akhir wa tu'mina bil-qadri khariha wa shariha. So after believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then comes belief in the angels and, and his creation. Um, and then after that, uh, we believe that, for example, the day of resurrection will come and the day of reckoning will take place. Um, and we believe that those with good deeds will outweigh um, and be given Jannah, um, whereas those with bad deeds will have um, a scale that is light and will be sent to uh, to Jahannam. Then another point that the commentator makes is that um, one of the branches of faith is that someone must continue to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and love him and that everything he do he does should be based on his love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If he loves someone, then it should be because of the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If he hates someone, it's because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would hate that person. Um, and so the most the biggest example of this is love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And so it reminds me of the hadith where a man came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and said, O Prophet of Allah, I love you, but I love myself more than you. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Your iman is still weak until I become more beloved to you than even yourself. Um, and so it shows you the, the amount of love that we need to have for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and then uh, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, and we show this once again by obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's commands and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's commands. Whereas disobedience to them shows a lack of love 
for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we seek refuge in Allah from that. Then the commentator mentions that um, another branch of faith is that we should do every deed merely for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's pleasure and not to show off or gain a benefit of this world. And it reminds me of the hadith of three people who will be rise, who will be uh, risen on the day of judgment and these three people will be a scholar who memorized the Quran or like who, who gained a lot of knowledge. The second will be someone who gave a lot of, uh, of charity and the third will be a, a martyr. And each of them will actually be sent to, to hellfire. And the reason being is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ask them, well, like for example, ask the martyr, why did you die in the name of, uh, why did you die um, for the sake of Islam? And then the person will say, oh, I did it for your sake, oh Allah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say, you are lying. You did it so that they will call you a martyr and so that you will look good. So go to hellfire and you received your reward. Uh, you received like what, what you wanted. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ask the, the alim, like, why did you gain so much knowledge? And the person will say, I did it for your sake, oh Allah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say, no, you're lying. You did it so that people would say, look at how intelligent he is. And then that person will be sent. And lastly, um, the person who gave a lot of charity, um, Allah will ask, why did you do so? And the person will say, I did it for your sake, oh Allah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say, no, you did it so that people would say, look at how generous he is. So go to hellfire. And the point being is that we need to do things for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's pleasure alone and not to receive a worldly benefit um, or, or, or to show off. Um, and then the scholar also mentions that a believer's heart should both be fearful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and hopeful of his favors. Um, and it reminds me of the ayah in Surah Zumar, that even though you fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you don't disparage in the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You don't lose hope in that mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because once you turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah says that he'll forgive you. So basically going off of that is that the commentator mentions that a person must fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's punishment and hope for his favors and grace um, for his pious deeds. It is a demand of faith that when a sin is committed intentionally or unintentionally, one must repent sincerely and be ashamed of one's conduct and seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness. Uh, likewise, one must thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for his blessings. Uh, and the scholar gives an example that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bestows children to a person, then he must observe the aqiqah. If one of them gets married, then he must throw a valima. Um, if a child completes memorizing the Quran or reciting it thoroughly, then he must express happiness and delight. Um, and if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted him wealth, then he must pay the zakat due on it. Uh, then in addition to that, uh, the scholar mentions um, that faith basically demands that a person honors their, their promises. So uh, part of that is being patient when a musibah, when a trial or when a tribulation comes to a person, that they remain patient uh, and they turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instead of giving up or instead of losing hope in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we ask that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us from that. Uh, and then lastly... Um, he, he mentions that the beauty of Islam and the perfection of faith calls upon him to continue to chant the kanima and the shahada, to recite Qur'an, uh, and if he's not learned the Qur'an, then he must acquire knowledge from the scholars, but if he's learned, then he must um, give that knowledge to those who don't know. Uh, and he must continue to preserve um, in seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's help in achieving his, um, uh, his objectives. Then, last, um, the last major point that he makes is that the person must realize that these branches of faith include many, many things, um, uh, like some examples being, um, including offering fard and optional salah, fasting, 
uh, covering oneself, giving charity, um, obeying one's superiors, raising one, raising one's children. Basically, the point being is that it's things that we do in our daily lives that we do. Uh, sort of what you said, like it's worship in the form of doing specific actions for the sake of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Okay, very good, Mashallah. So a couple other things to, to add. Uh, what is the difference between Iman and Aqidah? How would you define the difference there? Aqidah is like a foundational belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like, it's like a creed basically, like mm-hmm. believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whereas Iman then is you believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then you have faith on everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prescribes you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't say like, oh, you know, I believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but I don't accept the Quran. Mm-hmm. Or I believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but I don't accept angels. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. Like, so, so, so very good, mashallah. And so, so as a creed, uh, the word aqidah comes from the same word that aqd comes from, like wahlul uqdatan millisani. What is yeah. that translation? Um, loosen the knot in my The phone. knot, right? And so aqidah is what binds you into the deen or into the ummah. And so the reason I'm saying this is that we often use the word iman, Billah, Iman, Bil Rasul, you know, so forth and so on, uh, within Aqidah. But Aqidah is essentially a claim of allegiance. Okay? Uh, whereas Iman is the real thing, the real uh, disposition. And so if you have Aqidah without Iman, what would you say would be the risk or the consequence of that? That your aqidah doesn't hold true. So you're so you're not living it. Yeah. Uh, is it enough for you to get into Jannah? Depends. Potentially, Allah knows best, right? There's a the the famous hadith where the Prophet peace be upon him is saying, you know, whoever says the shahada, I'm paraphrasing, then the fire will be forbidden. And then Abu Huraira asks, should I go tell people? And the Prophet says uh, they might start leaning, relying upon this, right? Meaning they might not do anything else. So the risk becomes that if you have aqidah, meaning you're claiming belief, but no iman, the risk is that you're going to go on the path towards hypocrisy, nifaq. If you have iman without aqidah, how would you describe that? Uh, that one's harder to describe because you have the belief, but you're not like you're not implementing it. Okay. Would you say that's what a baby has? Yeah. So 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 the implementation is there, but the creed is not articulated. And so essentially what's taking place is you're risking not being part of the community. You're risking losing the community because you don't have a known connection to the community. Again, the idea of Aqidah being it's binding you into the deen, it's binding you into the ummah itself. And so here are we speaking, uh, when we're using the term Iman, are we speaking of aqidah, or are we speaking of the thing we were talking about, like this living, breathing? The thing we were talking about before. Yeah. And so, so, if we look at this in reverse order, okay, so Iman has 70 branches. Okay, got it. Um, um, haya, you know, modesty, is a branch of Iman. Um, removing a hurdle from a path, so removing a twig or a thorn from the path, uh, is is a branch of iman. Describe that behavior. What is that person doing? Who is that person benefiting? The community. They're benefiting community. 
especially strangers. They don't know who is going to be benefiting from it. So it would be not unlike a bigger version of that would be someone who is opening up a fountain. They don't know who's going to benefit from it. Uh, it could be mu'min, it could be mu'minun, it could be kafirs. They're giving benefit to everyone. So that itself is a branch of, of Iman. And now, so the highest, of course, is, is Iman Billah. So, La ilaha illallah. Uh, what happens if you have Iman in Allah, but you don't have modesty? Describe that. Um, then, once again, I think um, it, it goes to, towards where uh, like you risk becoming arrogant or you risk corrupting yourself mm -hmm. because uh, even if you have that belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh -huh. if you don't have modesty, then you're going to want to, like, you run the risk of having your, your actions basically become show-offy, uh -huh. um, which can lead you towards uh -huh. um, being a hypocrite. So here, it's one of the differences between a hypocrite, a monafiq, and a fasik, is that a fasik does not have any modesty or does not have any shame. Meaning a hypocrite naturally does not want you to know that they're a hypocrite. Oftentimes a hypocrite doesn't even realize they're a hypocrite, but they don't want you to think of them as a hypocrite. A fasik doesn't care. So if you were to somehow have iman without hayat, without modesty, you're risking the falling down the path, not just of hypocrisy, but of, of, of fisk, of, of just not caring. Okay. So, like, we're taught you should not share your sins. Keep your sins covered, inshallah, Allah ta'ala keep them covered. Especially if Allah has kept your sins covered, you should definitely not advertise them. Fasik doesn't care, right? The Fasik is open about their sins. Uh, what if you have Iman in Allah, but you're not doing this service to other people? Describe that. Um, so that kind of reminds me of a hadith where a person, like... Um, Allah, uh, the Prophet he said, I forget if it was like a man or a woman, but yeah. that person prayed, that person did um, good things, uh, and the Prophet said that person's a person of the hellfire. Oh, and the companions asked why, it was because she was, uh, she or he was unkind to the people around her, to her neighbors. Um, and so basically, when you do that, you run the risk, um, because serving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in order to do so, you need to also serve His creation. Um, so if you don't do that, then you're risking that belief of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mm -hmm. by not following His command. Mm -hmm. So here, uh, you know, you mentioned this important point about this obligation to serve His creation. So we have this passage uh, in the Hadith, and there's a similar passage in the Bible, in the Gospels, where... I was sick, but you did not you, you did not come to me, right? Or I was poor or hungry, you did not feed yeah. me, right? And so a pathway to connect to Allah Ta'ala is by way of modesty. Another pathway to connect to Allah Ta'ala, and connect is a careful word, a pathway to be closer to or to fulfill your iman or to win the pleasure of Allah is by serving others. If you're removing the service of others, then the risk is that your hawa might take over. And, and so we would call this narcissism. And so this could be a person, just like you're describing, where they're making all their prayers. Yeah. But as society is falling apart, they're not even blushing. And so that is also part of our, of our outlook. And so, and so it's fascinating that of the 70 or so branches of faith, 
you know, and as you mentioned, in another nourishing 60 or so. Um, the top is La ilaha illallah. And what does that mean? It's more like what you were speaking about when we were speaking about the Shahada, that you're implementing it, you're believing in it, which means by extension, it includes service to others, and by extension, it includes modesty. And so what is service to others doing? It's removing my focus from myself. And what is modesty doing? It's clamping down on myself. So one is taking away the centrality of myself and my own thinking. The other one is is shrinking myself in my, my own thinking, inshallah. All is part of getting closer to Allah Ta'ala. Okay. Uh, any questions about anything? Yeah, a couple actually. Yeah. So first of all, um, when it comes to this, the like this hadith, would you say that like the the shahada, like فَأَفْضَلُهَا قَوْلُ لَا إِلَهَا إِلَّا اللَّهِ, uh, would you say that that's basically like that encompasses every other branch of faith, or do you think that like I believe it, it encompasses everything. Okay, and yeah. then um, when when you mention like uh, the the munafiq and then the transgressor with the transgressor being like the fasiq being uh, someone who just doesn't care yeah. and the munafiq being one who still has shame, Allah subhanahu wa taala like He mentions that a person who has shame on the day of judgment, Allah subhanahu wa taala will hide their shame. So why is it that the munafiq is considered? far, far lower than, than, than a fasik. So the shame, well, I don't know that a monafik is considered lower than a fasik. Okay. Right, because what, uh, what is the idea, uh, ayah uh, uh, on fisk? Um, uh, let's see, yeah, let's see. This is in Surah Al-Baqarah. This would be probably the, the uh, third or fourth of Gubba Baqarah. Um, um, start the ayah that starts with Inna Allah la yastahi. Inna Allah la yastahi. In yadrib mathalan ma ba'udatan fama fawqaha. Fa amma al-ladina amanu fa yaglimun anna al-hukum rabbihim. Wa amma al-ladina kafaru fa yaqulu mada rada Allah bihada mathala. Kedanik yudum. Yudilu bihi. Yudilu bihi katiru wa yahdi bihi katiru ma yudilu bihi inna al-fasiqin. Wa ma yudilu bihi illa al-fasiqin. And then. Wa ma yudilu bihi illa al-fasiqin. Al-ladina. الَّذِينَ يَنْقُضُونَ عَهْدَ اللَّهِ مِنْ بَعْدِ مِثَاقِهِ وَيَقْطَعُونَ مَا أَمَرَ اللَّهُ بِهِ أَنْ يُسْرَ وَيَفْسِدُونَ فِي الْأَرْضِ أُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْخَاسِرُونَ أُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْخَاسِرُونَ So, what does it say about the people of Taqwa? That these are the people, أُولَئِكَ أَلَا هُدَمِّ رَبِّهِمْ So they have guidance from their Rabb. وَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْمُفْلِحُونَ And they are successful. Whereas the Fasik is literally the opposite. That Allah Ta'ala does not guide them, or um, He does not misguide anyone except for them or he does not let anyone go astray except for them, and they're the losers. So think of the Fasik as literally the mirror image of the Muttaqi. But a Fasik may or may not be a believer. It's just that they're uh, open and ostentatious about their wrong, whereas a hypocrite is a, is a believer. But the shame, uh, I would say, is not the same. I would say the, the hypocrite uh, is, has a shamelessness with Allah Ta'ala. So what I was thinking was the ayah yeah. of Surah Nisa, the ayah right before the Juz page, the end of um, of fifth Juz, where it's um, in the Munafiqin fi dark al asfali min al nari wal antajida lahum nasira, where Allah Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says like verily the Munafiqun are going to be in the lowest pits of hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't think that negates the the points about the fasik. Okay, okay. Because we don't see the fasik discussed as much in in the Quran. But uh, a way to think about it is that when I'm reading passages as a believer uh, about hypocrites, uh, my concern is to make sure I'm not one of them. Uh, chances are, if my concern is that I'm not one of them, automatically my concern is not to be a faucet. 
So Fisk is mentioned quite a few times in the Quran. I don't think it's mentioned. We can look it up nearly as many times as Nifah is mentioned. Right? And even being the lowest, the lowest uh, uh, levels of hell does not negate others being there as well. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, and then one other question was that, like, going back <coughs> with the um, uh, having iman but not like having aqidah, and then talking about like babies, would that so would having iman without aqidah would that be like considered fitra or? Yeah. Okay. And so, so, so aqidah, think of it as a science that was formed, not so much to define what Islam is, it's more to define what Islam is not. Okay. So, so this, we, I think we, we might have discussed this in, in the Ghazali class maybe, but um, the point being that Abu Hanifa is, is uh, may Allah's mercy be upon him, is uh, perhaps the person who started the whole field of aqidah. And... And it was because there were a lot of people who were claiming Islam who had serious problems in their beliefs. And so in the, uh, in the modern outlook, think of, of the way a Sunni would look at someone from the nation of Islam. Or the way a Sunni would look at someone from the Ahmadiyya uh, group. That, uh, so someone from the nation of Islam wholeheartedly considers themselves to be Muslim. But from a Sunni lens, they're wrong in terms of, of Tawheed, they're wrong in terms of Risala, they're wrong in terms of Akhira. That theirs is the belief that God came in the form of a man, that there's no day of judgment, and that Elijah Muhammad's a messenger. Right? And so, so Aqidah was formed less to define what Islam is as opposed to define what Islam is not. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of comments I had uh, that I want to add to your the, the summary that you gave. Um, and it's slipping me now. I should have taken written notes. I took mental notes. Inshallah, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it was all very good, mashallah. Any other questions? Uh, no, I think that's it. <coughs> okay, inshallah. So we'll continue with this next time. Okay, inshallah. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika, illa ilaha illa anta.